This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey friends, and welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson. I'm a Christian freelance writer, mom of two littles, and I'm passionate about helping you live out your best and deepest faith in everyday life. On this podcast, you'll hear from inspiring women, moms, and ministry leaders, authors, and more. Those on mission for God with a message to inspire you in your Christian walk, wherever that may be. Each month, I send out interviews, tips, book reviews, and exclusive giveaways to my email list. If you'd like to receive these things, just head to my website, ericaanderson.com, and sign up. My new book, Reason to Return, Why Women Need the Church and the Church Needs Women, comes out this January, and I want you to be the first to know all the details. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm really excited today to be talking with Nancy Piercy, who is the author of the book, Love Thy Body, among other books as well. Um, and this is, I, I was just so in love with this book for this particular time in the world that I knew I had to ask her on the podcast. Um, I've heard her speak on other podcasts and I know you're just going to love hearing from her today. So Nancy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Um, so what I have to just start by asking you, um, what prompted the idea to write this book specifically? Well, it's a long story. <laughs> um, I had um, written an earlier book called Total Truth, and I wrote that because um, I wanted to try to understand why Christians had a hard time grasping the notion of a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And in the questions you sent me, you started with that, so um, maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, had, I had co-authored a book with Chuck, Chuck Colson called How Now Shall We Live? And what I found out is that as I went out and you know did public speaking on the book, it was hard for people to grasp the idea of worldview for Christians. And so I kind of went back to the drawing board and thought, well, you know, why is this a difficult concept? And I realized, well, the main reason is because we have this really strong sacred secular split that we, th- we tend to live as though you know, there's some things on one side of a line you call God and church and religious activities. And then on the other side of the line is our ordinary life, you know, our, our work and our recreation, our home, our political ideas and so on. And a lot of Christians don't know how to bring the two together. And so that's sometimes called the sacred secular split. And if you have the sacred secular split, you will going to think that Christianity belongs on one side of the line, you know, um, Francis Schaeffer, who is a well-known apologist, used the metaphor of two stories in a building. So he said that, yeah, the upper story is the sacred and the lower story is the secular. So to use that language, when we talk about Christianity, we often put it in the upper story where it's a matter of personal experience, you know, what makes us feel better, what gives us a sense of comfort and purpose in life. But we don't really see it as something that um, applies to all of reality. We don't think of it as a, um, we think of it more as a spiritual technique and not as a view of all of reality. And of course, that's what worldview means. It means right. a view of the entire world. And yeah. so 
what what I discovered is that um, as I began researching other areas is that if your concept of truth has a split, it's going to apply everywhere. And so when I started researching um, the life issues, abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, and so on, I discovered that there's a split there too. You know, if um, and the most well, the most obvious one is abortion. And since we just, you know, in the, we're in the middle right now of the controversy over the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade, um, it might be a good place to start. Um, so in the question of abortion, it turns out that if you want to understand what the secular world is saying, which I think we should do as Christians, <laughs> if you want to understand what the secular world is saying, you read secular bioethicists, mm-hmm. and they use the same split, but apply it to the human being. What they basically say is, uh, yes, the fetus is human. Mm-hmm. You know, really, professional bioethicists don't, do not deny that life begins at conception. The evidence from DNA and science and genetics is just too strong to deny it. Just read any embryology textbook. Yes. But what they do, how do they, how do they support abortion then? Well, they say, well, the fetus is human, but it's not a person mm-hmm. until sometime later, usually defined in terms of some kind of cognitive ability, mental awareness, self-consciousness, and so on. Well, if you can be human at one point, but not a person until sometime later, then clearly these are two different things. And so you can use that same two-story metaphor and say, well, in the lower story is what we know by science, right? That's, that's the secular realm. So that's what we know by science, biologically, physiologically, chromosomally, clearly the fetus is human. Mm-hmm. But then it doesn't become a person until sometime later. So personhood is something in the upper story where it talks about what we value and what moral status that we give to human life. Mm-hmm. And so in that arena, well, it bec- if it's separated from biology, it ends up being very subjective. Every bioethicist draws the line at a different place. Right. So you see this, this split between the body and the person is coming straight out of what secular bioethicists say. And it, it turns out, you know, once I had um, discovered that well, it's not. I should have back. I should have said back up a little. So the sacred secular split is not only for Christians. It turns out secular people have it too. Mm-hmm. They call it the fact value split, mm-hmm. where facts are in the lower story and values are in mm-hmm. the upper story, and so it's a split in the concept of truth itself. And so, so that's that's when I began to research um, uh, bioethical issues. I thought, oh my goodness, here it is. That's the same fact value split now applied to the human being. You know, what we know by science versus what we, what we, you know, how we value life. So the, the facts of science versus how we value life. And so that's kind of how I got into writing this book, is I wanted to help Christians understand what we're up against in the secular world. You know, what, how are secular people dealing with this? Because, you know, you have to answer the questions people are actually asking. Right. <laughs> so that was my goal. Yeah, I mean, I think as I wrote in that question that this really helped me sort of understand that when I'm having a conversation with a person with a secular worldview, it really is almost like we're speaking a different language. Um, We're not, like you said, we're not asking the same questions. We don't have the same values. Like we don't have the same goals. And so it kind of actually was helpful because I realized as I maybe disagreeing with someone online or something that like, it's not like they have like, uh, 
it's not like they're a bad person, you know, so to speak for what they believe, but they're just coming at it from such a different place. That there's just no way that we're ever going to be able to see eye to eye. And I think that's a, that's a first thing to recognize, I think, in, in helping us not be so frustrated by some of these conversations. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, people believe what they're told. <laughs> and if they've been raised with a certain worldview, that's what they're going to believe. So it's not out of any sort of evil motivations. It's because they, they've been raised that way and they haven't had any reason to question it. So what I do in Love Thy Body is I help them question it. You know, um, it's like you say, it's not enough to say, well, I disagree with you because, uh, you know, and I, I believe X, Y, and Z because they'll, they'll just say, well, that's good for you. <laughs> I'm, happy that, I'm happy if that works for you. <laughs> um, so to, to really approach secular people, we have to be able to show that their worldview has deficiencies on its own terms. We have to enter into their worldview and show why it doesn't work. And so the goal of Lovely Body is to help non-Christians recognize their own worldview is very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's basically good, gives no, it erodes the whole basis of human rights. If, say, sticking with co- the um, example of abortion, if you can say that the fetus is human, but it has no human rights, well, they've just destroyed the basis of human rights. Right. The, whole, the whole notion of human rights is that you don't, these are not anything you have to earn. <laughs> These are not convi- these are not uh, given to you by your government because then the government can take them away. Mm-hmm. Human rights is something you have just because you're a member of the human race. Mm-hmm. And the, the Declaration of Independence called them inalienable, meaning nobody can take them away. You know, if you have them just because you're human, or as to the, the Declaration of Independence adds, um, <laughs> given by their creator, <laughs> mm-hmm. given by something higher than the state, in other words, um, then human rights is something you have just because you're made in God's image and you're human. But what secular bioethicists are saying, this is the implicit logic, not that all secular people recognize this, you have to help them see it. But implicitly, what they're saying is being human is no longer enough for human rights. You have to earn the right to be treated as a person, to have moral status, to be legally protected, by becoming a person, quote unquote, which means, you know, after you've developed a certain level of cognitive functioning. So you see what you what you have to say to secular people is you've just destroyed the whole basis of human rights. You realize that if being human is no longer enough for human rights, this is dramatically dehumanizing as a worldview. And so you have to sort of make an apologetic showing that their own worldview doesn't work and doesn't give them what they want. Of course, most secular people still want human rights. And we have to show them that to have what they want, they have to accept the Christian worldview. Right. And, and you know, you wrote in the book about, because ever, nobody likes it when anyone makes a comparison to not the Nazi, Nazi Germany, right? Or to slavery. Um, but that is an applicable comparison. Can you tell us why that is an applicable, applicable comparison? Yeah, so every non-Christian worldview is reductionistic, and that means they reduce human beings in some way. And so they reduce the value and dignity of human life. So what did so uh, you know, abortion reduces the dignity of human life, like I just explained. You know, it says if you're human, by the way, what they're really saying is if the fetus is human, they're saying, well, we're basically going to adopt a materialistic view that says it's, re- it's really just a chunk of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. 
It can be experimented with. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be picked through for sellable body parts as Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. And that's exactly how medical journals describe the fetus. After abortion, they call it medical waste. So abortion is radically dehumanizing. And so the reason it's similar in principle to say Nazism, Nazism had also a principle by which it dehumanized people. Its principle was race, right? Uh, the Nazis claimed to be Aryan. And if you were the wrong race, if you were Gypsy or Jewish or Slavic, then you had no human rights. You could be herded off into boxcars, shipped off to concentration camps and worked to death or put in the ovens. Mm. So if the principle here is if your worldview dehumanizes human life, uh, it will lead to radically negative consequences. So that's the connection. Hmm. Uh, I didn't put this down, but this question <clears throat> does come to mind, which is, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people lately comparing abortion to sacrificing children to Moloch, you know, the God from the Old Testament, they're the, the fake God from the Old Testament. Um, and what, like, what are your thoughts on that comparison? Because, you know, it's, it's a little more tidy, I guess, these days, uh, how it's done, but it seems, it seems like it, it's similar in nature. Yeah, it's so it's so sad. Um, not only the Philistines, but also in Carthage, they practiced um, child sacrifice. And what's interesting is that even the Romans at that time thought it was a hideous practice. You know, it wasn't just Bible. Well, they weren't Christians back then, but it wasn't just the Old Testament people of God. It wasn't just the Jews who thought it was a bad thing. Many of the surrounding cultures also thought that the child sacrifice. Uh, was was horrendous, morally awful. So it's interesting because you can see in the literature by Romans at the time, um, mm. saying that, that that was one of the their complaints about the people of Carthage. Mm. Is, the Philistines actually crossed the Mediterranean Sea and, and were the ones who um, uh, colonized Carthage. So they brought their child sacrifice with them. Yeah, it, the similarity would be, of course, that it, uh, the the Old Testament worship of Moloch was a religion, and the religion said, uh, if if you want to favor the gods, if you want the gods to show favor to you, you, you have to sacrifice something to them. Mm-hmm. And the most um, cherished thing, the most precious thing you have is your child. Mm-hmm. And so I do think there's some similarities in that abortion has almost become sacred, a sacred right to some feminists. Um, there were um, not long ago in the news. There was there were some um, religious progressive Christian progressives saying you know, religion, that abortion is a blessing, and we thank God for abortion. So that's where it's most obvious is when religious progressives literally treat re- uh, abortion as a sacrament. Yeah. But, and, oh, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. So, so I, I'm basically agreeing with you, in other words. Yeah, I just, um, you know, it, it really does seem sometimes for those that don't have real faith that secularism is the religion in a way. It's, it's you know, having an abortion, hopefully, that you know, they hope leads to a better life, essentially. I mean, that's the argument that you're going to be able to go to school, that you're going to be able to have enough money to, you know, all of these things. So it makes sense. Um now, I wanted to ask you about one of the things I loved in the book was your um, the part that you wrote about how Christianity was really the the founder of child welfare. Um, you know, we hear a lot about 
obviously you hear people all the time that, oh, Christians don't do enough for these kids that they want to be born, right? Um, but the reality is that most of that stuff is done by Christian organizations and churches outside of the government. And that before Christianity, child welfare didn't exist. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that is so interesting. There's um, one historian who's written a whole book on this, and it's very interesting. In the, in Roman culture, of course, the early Christian church was born into ancient Roman Greco culture. And in that culture, children had very little value. They were seen as non-persons. They were, it was common to beat them. Parents rarely raised their own kids if they had, if they had slaves at all, slaves and servants. Um, they would hand over their children to the slaves to raise. And of course, fathers had the right to kill their children for any reason if they wanted to. Uh, you know, the, child, the, the father back then basically had uh, authority of life and death over his household, which meant his wife, his children, his servants, and so on. Um, and so, and, and children were even seen uh, negatively because, you know, they were weak. They were weak and, and, and irrational. And Roman culture, you know, valued strength and rationality. <laughs> and so they were seen, and you know, until they got a little older, they were just not seen as, as very, uh, like I said, they were not even seen as persons. And by the way, you didn't ask this, but coincidentally, this was also another reason that women had low value in Roman mm. culture. Because, you know, women obviously are more engaged with their children. And, you know, they, the fact that women were more emotionally connected to their children was seen as a sign of weakness on their part. Because, you know, why would you value something that has so little value? That shows something wrong with you. So it was one of the reasons that women were also denigrated in Roman culture. So it was Christianity that first introduced the idea that no, Christ, I mean, read, that children have great value. Just read what Jesus says about them. Right. You know, once you know that, it's, you have a much greater understanding of why when mothers brought their children to Jesus to bless them, the disciples wanted to shoo them away mm-hmm. because they were more influenced by that notion of oh, children. Then they have no, they have no value. Whereas when Jesus accepted the children, he was not only valuing the children, he was also respecting the mothers. And he was saying that the mother's love for their children is not something, you know, as a sign of weakness uh, or, or vulgarity. And that, that's how the historian puts it. He said, the, the fact that mothers were more engaged with their children is a sign of weakness and vulgarity on their part. Yeah. Oh man, you gotta love, you gotta love Jesus, right? I mean, you love him. <laughs> Most people don't realize that he was not only being kind to children, he was being respectful of mothers. He was saying that mother's love for their children is, is valuable. It's a sign of the image of God. Mm-hmm. That there's some things we learn best about God from mothers because they're yes. made in his image. Mm-hmm. And that was just not part of this, the culture at all. Uh, and of course, Jesus had other, ver- there's other verses like anyone who calls us these young people a stumble, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around his neck and so on. And so th- these were all just it's astonishing for the first century. Even the disciples had trouble with this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, I-, I think it was the fourth century, John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, was still telling parents, you need to raise your own kids, <laughs> you know, because, it, like I said, it was common to just slough off childcare to servants because, you know, this wasn't important. John Chrysostom actually has a sermon where he says, parents, you need to raise your own children because, after all, it is the most important job you have. What's at stake is an eternal soul. 
And that's yeah. how he put it. What's at stake is an eternal soul. So this is really the most important thing you should do. And that was like fourth century. He was still arguing yes. that parents should value their children. So it took a while. But you're right. It was Christianity that turned the culture around and started us treating children as precious and valuable persons. Mm, that's so cool. Um, now, uh, you you have so many subjects that you cover in this book, so we can't we can't get to everything. But there was one line that I wanted to touch on, which is, um, you know, when it comes to when we're talking about uh, the transgender stuff and homosexuality, um, you write that we should tell the truth with our bodies. And I would love to hear you explain what does that mean and why does it matter. Yeah, I said that I, that particular line. I think with homosexuality. Um, Again, it's the split. Well, I'll, I'll start with transgenderism because it's easier to see there. The split between the person and the body. You know, mm. We talked about that with abortion. Well, it turns out it applies to homosexuality and transgenderism too. Transgender activists argue explicitly that your body has nothing to do with your gender identity, that your body or your biological sex is not part of your authentic self, that your internal sense of self can actually contradict your body. Um, uh, when I uh, when I write books, I try to read what the um, experts say, right? Because that's what filters down. And so I read a book. It's, I think it's the first book written by a philosopher uh, at Princeton University defending transgenderism. And to my great surprise, this was supposed to be a defense. But this philosopher said that transgenderism involves disconnect, disjunction, self alienation, you know, and and then and then literally said this. Your physical body means nothing at all. It tells us nothing. I thought, this is a defense. In my book, this is showing what's wrong with transgenderism. It's, once again, it's dehumanizing because it says that your body is not valuable. It's not significant. You know, it's irrelevant to who you are. And so what we say as Christians is, why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? It's so interesting because in the past, Christians have been thought to have a low view of the body, right? And we care only about the spiritual realm, this realm, the physical realm, this physical realm is not important. Uh, you, know, you know, one of my students put it this way, growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. <laughs> um, so ironically, it, today, it is Christians who are arguing for the value and dignity and purpose of the body. So we're looking we're over against transgenderism. We're saying that you should value your body and you should take your identity from your body. I, um, I, I read an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years from age 11 and then had, re, yeah, very young, and had then um, reclaimed her identity as a girl. And here's how she put it in this interview. She said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Mm -hmm. And this book, this interview came out after my book was already, already published, but it would have been a great interview to quote in a book titled Love Thy Body. But what it means is even secular people are starting to see that mm -hmm. the issue with transgenderism is your view of the body. Yeah. Um, and and so, in fact, you'll start to see secular websites now saying, Transgenderism rep represents body hatred. That's, mm -hmm. they're, they're starting to use that phrase. It's body hatred. 
So, you know, the, the secular world is catching up with my book. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's kind of that's my argument in Love Their Body is that these, the secular world is dismissing the body and that Christians should say, no, no, God created the body. God created the physical world. It has value and dignity because anything God creates, you know, is intrinsically good and has value. Yeah. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, why do people feel that they need to change their gender? Like what, what is that thing that makes them think that they're going to be fulfilled by this, this shift? Yeah. Well, you know, there's two answers to that. Cause there's two types of gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Today, the most common type of gender dysphoria is, is um, you know, it's sometimes called rapid onset gender dysphoria because it arrives, you know, shows up for the first time in adolescence or teen years. Um, and usually it's a girl. Uh, it's a girl who felt perfectly comfortable being a girl when she was young. And as far as we can tell, an awful lot of it is social contagion. You know, social contagion is like one kid commits suicide and suddenly there's a rash of teen suicides. Well, one kid, you know, says, oh, I'm really a boy and I'm going to be much, one girl says, I'm really a boy and I'm much happier. And they get on YouTube and they, they do TikTok videos saying, oh, I finally got my tea and my testosterone mm-hmm. and I'm so happy. Or they show their, their scarred chest, you know, because they got their mastectomy and they say, oh, I'm so happy and I'm so, you know, this is wonderful. So there is an awful lot of that. And, and now, up until recently, it was mostly on the Internet. Now it's school. More and more kids are coming home from school and saying, oh, you know, my uh, 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 first grader, a first grader came home from school and told her mom, this was in the news, so, um, which is how I know the story. Um, first grader comes home and says, my mom, uh, my teacher, mom, my teacher tells me uh, just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. And just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl. So, mommy, what am I? And this mm. literally said, mommy, please take me to the doctor so we can find out what I am. <laughs> so even kids at that age, and it's coming down to kindergarten, it's coming down to preschool. You know, gender ideology now is being taught at a very young age. So uh, what, you, to answer your question, one reason is that they're absolutely surrounded by it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's also cool and sophisticated. Right. You know, n- nobody wants to be a boring old heterosexual anymore. You know, that, <laughs> You know, if you want to be sophisticated and cool and rebellious and all that, you know, uh, there was a, in fact, um, there's a recent, t- there's a, a trend now towards de- detransitioning. Yes. Yeah. So there was a detransitioner who's, who's uh, been featured in a couple articles recently. She was on Tucker Carlson recently. Her name was Helena. And she said, you know, I was unhappy, uh, like many teenagers, you know, I had a lot of depression and anxiety. and um, you know, from school, I was getting that I was bad because I was white, but I couldn't change that. And I was bad because I was heterosexual. Well, I couldn't really change that. And I was bad, you know, but the one thing I could change was my gender. She said, mm-hmm. well, that's what first made me think of it. Well, maybe I'd be better off if I changed my gender. And then, of course, once she started thinking about it, she started thinking, well, maybe some of my anxiety and depression and other issues are related to this. And so she lived as transgender for, I forget, you know, for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then her name is Helena, if you want. I don't remember her last name, but mm-hmm. she's been in the news recently. But but I I would say, so that's actually, it seems to be the majority yeah. of the cases now. Now, there is true gender dysphoria. Right, yeah. Which and, usually starts at a very young age. Mm-hmm. 
So you may remember in my book, I do tell the story of a young boy named Brandon who, was, who mm-hmm. had gender dysphoria from a y- very young age. Yeah. You know, while, while he was still crawling you know, before, before he was even walking, you know, people were starting to wonder what was what was up with this kid. You know, he was um, his babysitter told his mother, he's too good to be a boy. <laughs> I well, she, you know, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, he was quiet, sweet, compl- compliant, gentle and so on. So anyway, she. He, from well, from I'll, I'll finish his story. In preschool, he was always playing with the little girls, not the little boys. By elementary school, he was coming to his parents weeping frequently and saying, "You know, I don't fit any any. I don't fit in anywhere. You know, I I, I don't like the things boys like. I, I like the things girls like. You know, feelings and emotions and relationships. God God should have made me a girl." And by his teenage years, by 14, he was uh, scouring the internet for sex reassignment surgery. And he said, well, what did his parents do? First, they made sure he knew they loved him just the way he was. They didn't try to change him. Um, I had a friend in seminary who was a former homosexual. And he said, you know, when I was young, I liked art and music. And my dad was baffled and kept trying to toughen me up by pushing me into more masculine activities like sports. And well, Brandon's parents didn't do that. They, they said it's perfectly okay to be a gentle, sensitive, emotional boy. <laughs> it does not mean you're really a girl. Mm-hmm. It may mean that God has equipped you to be in a, the caring professions, like a counselor, psychologist, right. healthcare worker. And they took him through <laughs> they took him through the Myers-Briggs types and showed him that boys and girls can be at either end of the spectrum. And they took him through the the fruits of the spirit and the gifts of the spirit. You know, yeah. Uh, prophecy and teaching are not masculine, as we might expect. Mercy and service are not feminine. So it took a long time. I mean, gender, gender dysphoria is, is truly a difficult thing. But by his early 20s, he had pretty much reconciled himself that he was, uh, that he was a boy. Here's how he put it. I came to realize that surgery would not give me what I wanted. It would not make me a girl. There's a, there's a very famous TED talk by a cardiologist. And, sh- and the, the f- most famous line from it is, is every cell has a sex. Mm, yeah, I've, I've seen that somewhere. <laughs> well, you know, like what you're saying, what he learned, what his parents taught him, like that's what we should be telling kids. We should be telling kids. It's okay to be sensitive. It's okay to like dolls. It's okay to want to play with girls. Like, it's okay to be who you are, who you are. Like that seems like it would be a much more affirming and healthy way to talk with kids about this stuff. Like it becomes so, they've made it so stereotypically gender based again. It doesn't even make sense. It's like, what? Now you're saying that like to be a a girl, you're supposed to wear pink, you know, that all of that is coming back up and it doesn't make sense. That kind of leads me to my next question too, which is, you know, one of the things that we hear from the left constantly is, you know, I believe in science. Like I see this all the time. I see this in my mom's groups on Facebook where they will be like, I'm looking, somebody said, I'm looking for a church that that believes in science. That was, and you know, this kind of thing. And I'm like. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership at Bow. We believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group 
teach the Bible or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. First of all, you know, Christians believe in science. That's just a silly myth. But secondly, um, when it comes to science, they don't believe all science. Like, like you said, like they're not, they're not believing that people are people. Um, as science says, they're not believing in actual biology as you know, we're born, we're not assigned a sex at birth, as they say, we are a particular sex at birth. And so, um, I guess my question is, how does a secular worldview, how does that encourage this kind of weird, irrational thinking? Yeah, I agree with you. It is an internal contradiction because, um, you know, the whole theme of Love Thy Body, my book, is that all of these um, moral issues this, that the secular worldview dismisses science, it dismisses the body, um, you know, whether it's abortion, it, um, like I said, read any embryology textbook, <laughs> it is clearly human. And so the secular worldview has to somehow dismiss that, uh, or transgenderism, clearly your biology, you're, you're biologically male or female. Of course, people will always say, well, what about intersex? And so you always have to ask, answer that question. You know, intersex people are not trans. That's the first thing. Most people think it's trans. No, no. Trans people are biologically line up with their sex. Their gonads, their genitals, their gender all line up. <laughs> They're either male or female. So it's not a physical thing. It's a psychological thing. Intersex is truly a physical thing. Yeah. Not that they really do have some abnormality or uh, they're, they're atypical in, in, in their physical qualities, their, homo, their hormones, their chromosomes are different and leading to um, sometimes their physical anatomy being somewhat um, indecipherable. You know, it's not always quite clear whether they're a boy or a girl. Um, so, uh, so that, you know, I've talked to a couple of intersex people, which is, which has been cool, you know, because they come up and talk to me after I give my lecture. <laughs> so, yeah. If they're if they're if they're in my audience, they'll come and talk to me. So I've met several intersex people now, um, and and most of them are fine. You know, like they know that they're most intersex people are either male with a few anomalies or they're female with a few anomalies, mm -hmm. um, and they're only like one less than one percent of the population anyway. Uh, secular people like to um, try to use them as a political football by saying, oh, there's not just male and female, there's all these things in between, which we call intersex. Well, they're only, they're less than 1% of the population. So mathematically, they can't be a whole spectrum in between. Right. And I, I heard somewhere, maybe you've heard this, that they don't like that. They don't like being used in that way. I heard like on their website that they're like, by the way, we're not part of this whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the women, one of the intersex women who uh, contacted me, oh, uh, by the way, the, the, on the spectrum thing, there's there are only two gonads, gonads, right? There's sperm and egg. There's, no, there's nothing in between. Right. 
you either have sperm or egg. That's it. Right. Um, but but yeah, one of the uh, intersex women who contacted me, um, she was one of the very very few where the doctors weren't sure. You know, um, and so they decided to. Do you know where this, the term "sex assigned at birth" comes from? <laughs> comes from intersex. No, because I didn't know that. That's where it came from originally. Because there are that doesn't even work at all. Then <laughs> that's the or, the origin of it was that in a very very few cases, um, doctors are not quite sure. Well, of course, this was before they did chromosome testing too. So this friend of mine, her name is Leanne. Um, you know, this was they didn't do chromosome testing, and and from her physical anatomy, they decided she was maybe more masculine than feminine. So they raised her as a boy, but she was always very small, very petite. She always felt feminine. Um, she had a she had a uh, scholarship at college, and they basically they basically said you need to get into counseling, or we're going to take away your scholarship because her gender issues were so obvious. I mean, when a boy's walking around with a skirt, they say, oh, "Today that would be okay." Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. back then they said you need to get into counseling. Anyway, she finally, as an adult, had the chromosome test. And found out that she had a very rare form of Turner syndrome. <laughs> and inter- there's an intersex <coughs> intersex condition called Turner syndrome. It was XXXO. Hmm. Um, and so she decided to resolve the uh, the ambiguity in in favor of feminine instead of masculine. So yeah. she and that's with all all of the um, surgeries and hormones that they use for um, and transgender kids was originally devised for intersex people because. She then went ahead and got the hormones, got the female hormones that her body wasn't producing, um, went through puberty in a matter of months, <laughs> which was tough, and, and got the surgery mm-hmm. and, and lives as a woman and is married. Wow. So for intersex people, that's where many of the, these things were, uh, the surgeries and hormones first came up with to help them, you know, because their chromosomes truly are somewhat anomalous. And so it helps resolve Sometimes they need some help resolving the identity in terms of uh, female and male. But anyway, so that's, uh, uh, and uh, I remember why I brought that up. Because she said to me, when, when you said they don't like, uh, intersex people don't like being pushed. Let me see if I can remember her exact words. Um, I quoted her in Lovely Body. She said something like, um, it hurts It hurts to be pushed into either camp. Mm-hmm. So, uh you know, that, that intersex people don't want to be a political football. Right. And they don't want to be pushed into either camp, not the LGBT camp. You know, uh, what's happened with her is because she, she she didn't figure out her true identity until she was an adult. Even some Christian churches have kicked her out. They've said, oh, so you're really trans. That's what you're saying. No, 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 intersex, intersex. Yeah, so she's actually been kicked out sometimes by Christian oh. groups. Yeah, so Take Christian... That. Christian groups need to ed- educate themselves on what is uh, what, what is uh, intersex, and and of course they should be treated with love and acceptance, just like anyone else with genetic issues, you yeah. know, with physical differences. Uh, but it's and it's not just Christians. She went to a doctor once. He looked at her, he looked at her uh, medical history and said, "Oh, so you're really a boy?" <laughs> no. <laughs> so so it's it, it's something we need to educate ourselves on because secular people use it to argue against the male-female binary, but some intersex people are not even um, accepted by Christian groups, and so we need to educate ourselves. Yeah, that makes me sad to hear that, mm-hmm. because anytime I hear of any kind of, any church or Christian group 
kicking someone out or, or however you would say it um, for a reason like that. I mean, I just makes me want to cry and yell and be like, that's not how we all are, you know? Um, but okay. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to, um, uh, this is on the questions that I sent you, but I'll just read it to you. A quote from your book that says, um, this is from someone else that you were quoting, but I thought it was really interesting. So once you basically redefine humanity as sexless, you end up with a dehumanized society in which there can be no legal mother or father or son or daughter or husband or wife without permission from the state. And then following that, you write, we speak ourselves into existence. Language takes priority over biology. Uh, could you speak a little further on how language shapes people and shapes society? Yeah, it, again, the most obvious is transgenderism because basically the person is saying, no, what I call myself is what counts. Not my biology, not, not my body, um, not my chromosomes, not my physiology, not my anatomy, nothing physical. The only thing that counts is what I call myself. And by the way, um, one, uh, w one researcher found that um, this was Lisa Diamond. She's the one who actually promoted the idea of fluidity. You know how you hear sex, sex is fluid. Mm -hmm. She's the one who came up with that term. And the reason she did is that when she, um, she discovered that 80% of people who come out as homosexual change their sexual identity label at least once. Hmm. 80% at least once. That means for some people it's more. So in other words, they come out as homosexual and then later decide they really, they, they go back to heterosexual and they go to bisexual or queer or some other label. But the point is, see, well, that, first of all, that does not sound like a trait that is biologically determined. <laughs> So what it what it comes down to is what I call myself, you know, uh, and that's why it's become such a big deal about pronouns. What I call myself is who I am. Therefore, you better use my pronouns because that's my identity. That's my core identity. So language, therefore, is now taking precedence over biology. What I call myself is what counts, and that's what counts in the law too. The context of that quote was was the law. So um, the only, for, for example, the only way the law can treat a trans woman, which is somebody born male, the same as a biological woman, is to say that biology doesn't matter mm -hmm. in terms of the law. That the law will only recognize gender, not sex, gender being whatever you call yourself. And so in the Bostock decision, which was 2020, the Supreme Court said that. It said, yes, the law will only recognize what you call yourself and not your sex. Uh, and for I think it was for, t for the purposes of Title VII, but of course it was quickly applied elsewhere as well. So the law itself now does not recognize your sex. You, the law recognizes only what you call yourself. And it's the same thing for um, uh, homosexuality. So the, the, the meaning of the Obergefell decision, which legalized same-sex marriage, was the same thing. Up until then, marriage was thought to be rooted in biology. <laughs> Males and females naturally come together and form families. But what the Supreme Court said was, no, 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 biology doesn't matter. All that matters is your, is your emotional commitment. Well, we have lots of emotional commitments, so what does that mean? That means the state decides which emotional commitments it's going to call marriage. Mm -hmm. So essentially, marriage is no longer rooted in biology. We, 
It's rooted in, you know, whoever calls themselves married. Right. (laughs) It's language. Language determines whether you're married or not. Not your biology, not your biological relations relationship. Or um, same thing with abortion. If the fetus is human, but you know, the, being human does not warrant legal protection. It doesn't get legal protection until it becomes a person. Well, who decides if it's a person? The state. I mean, ultimately, it's the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that <laughs> reminds. Whoever has the most power. So again, it's who labels, who's going to call this a person? It's language. Yeah. That reminds me of, and maybe you've heard this term too, um, of the term linguistic theft. Have you heard that term? Linguistic what? Linguistic theft. So (laughs) yeah, I heard that from Natasha Crane. Um, She wrote the book Faithfully Different that recently came out. And she just talks about how um, the secular culture will take a word that, you know, maybe we all support. um, And then they sort of change the definition so that if you don't support it, then you sound like a bad person, like equality. You know, if you don't, if you don't support the word, if you don't support equality, which who knows what that is, it's however the secular world is defining it currently, um, then you therefore now are not a good person. And so it's just another example of how language can be used to shape so much in a very negative way. So... Let me give you a final example, because you quote the quote that you read included parenthood. Um, Up until recently, parenthood was thought to be uh, rooted in biology. The woman who carried the child was the mother. Right. And uh, the legal father was her legal husband. He was presumed to be the father. That was called the presumption of parentage. Um, But in the same sex couple at least one person is not genetically related to the child. And so until recently, the non-genetic person, you know, did not go on the birth certificate because, you know, it's supposed to be genetic relationship. Well, same-sex couples could adopt, but they didn't want to do that because then they would be being treated differently from from opposite-sex couples. And they wanted to be treated exactly the same. Otherwise, it was discrimination. So in a 2017 decision, the, same, the Supreme Court agreed. It said that as long as uh, the couple is legally married, you know, it's a same-sex marriage, <coughs> then the um, non-biological parent g- does go on the birth certificate and is given the same status as a biological parent. So notice once again, parenthood is now being defined apart from biology. Oh, in so many other ways as well, <laughs> you know, surrogacy and... Yes, and, yes. That's now, a whole other can of worms we could get into. Well, that, for many same-sex couples, that, yes, they're, they're using they're using various various forms of uh, artificial reproduction. But but the main point in all of those is that somebody who's not genetically related is going to be treated as if they were mm-hmm. gen- genetically related. So what that comes down to then is parenthood is not based on biology; it's based on whoever the state calls the parent. So again, this, you, that's why that quote ended with "you you are your child's parent by the permission of the state." That was the reasoning behind that. Yeah. yeah. All right, Nancy, I know we're out of time, but, um, you know, last question just would be, what, how would you encourage people that want to, I mean, outside of reading Love Thy Body, of course, um, any other materials or, or people they should be listening to um, just as we're like navigating this tumultuous world of secular culture? Well, it is interesting that since my book Love Thy Body came out, there have been a couple other books on the body. Yeah. <laughs> 
people have said, oh, oh, we need to change our way of treating the body. <laughs> and so there's that one, I haven't read it yet, but it just came out called, I think, a, a Protestant theology of the body, mm-hmm. because there was a Catholic theology of the body. Um, so, and there's a book called Embodied, and you know, there are people are starting to, yeah, okay, so people are starting to recognize, hey, if we want to just um, counter the secular world on these moral issues, it turns out that they all have to do with how we treat the body. And Christians need to re- really rethink that sacred secular split and come to uh, a broader Christian worldview that says, no, all, you know, all of creation is, is a product of God. It's all God's handiwork. And therefore, it all has value and purpose and dignity. And, and the only, uh, I suppose one other um, possible way to, to think about it is it is really what's at the heart of the of the question about um, evolution, by the way. Um, there's a very outspoken lesbian whose name is Camille Paglia. You yes. you might know her. Yes, I've heard of her, yes. Right. A lot of Christians read her because she's a bit of an iconoclastic feminist. Uh-huh. Um, because she says uh, she does not accept the feminist idea that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Um, Nature, here's how she puts it. Nature made us female, male and female. Oh, wait, let me see, see if I can remember her exact. Her exact words were, were kind of funny. She said, uh, humans were designed for sexual reproduction. <laughs> designed. <laughs> humans were designed for sexual reproduction. So you say, well, then how do you justify being a lesbian? And, and by the way, she's recently decided she's trans. She's come out oh. as trans. <laughs> but either way. How do you, how, if, if nature made us male and female, how do you justify that? And here's what she says. She says, well, why not defy nature? After all, and this is a drug quote. She says, God, uh, fate, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Mm. So do you see the logic? The logic is that if our bodies are products of blind, material, purposeless forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose that we are morally obligated to respect. They give us no moral message. They give us no clue to our identity. And we can treat it like some sort of a tool that we can use however we want. So the answer to that is Christians really need to uh, practice explaining to secular people that this world does have a purpose, that God did create it for a purpose. and even science shows us, I mean, at a very rudimentary level, eyes are made for seeing, ears are yeah. made for hearing, wings are made for flying. Like how much more obvious could the body be? It couldn't be any more obvious, right? I mean, biologists deal with this all the time. They call it teleology. Teleology is just a technical word being made for a purpose. Right, know? right. And so... Christianity explains why we see teleology in nature, and especially, by the way, with the discovery of DNA, because what that means is the whole development of the organism is directed by an inbuilt plan or blueprint. Yeah. So even science shows that nature was made for a plan, a design, a purpose, a plan. And so what Christians are saying is that when we live in accord with that plan, we're going to be happier and healthier. Mm-hmm. I'll give you one story. We didn't do too many stories, so I'll give you just one from my sure. book. It's a short one, but it illustrates this point. 
So I, I gave the story of uh, Jean, who was a lesbian, lived as a lesbian for many years, and uh, today is a Christian, married and has two kids. And here's how she put it. She said, I can't, this is a direct quote, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Mm. And so that is the theme I press home again and again in Love Thy Body is we need to learn to use that positive language. And by the way, Erica, I have found that this is a difficult thing. When I speak in, you know, to Christian audiences, they find this really hard. They're so used to saying, it's wrong, it's a sin, it's against the Bible, don't do it. <laughs> and the implication, of course, is there's something wrong with you. So we're, we're very much known for that negative message. Mm -hmm. And so when I speak on this in public, uh, you know, to Christian audiences, I come back to this over and over again. I want, Jean said, I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. And so honor your body, live in harmony with your body, respect mm -hmm. the creator's design, live in, a, in accord with who God created you. We need to practice using this positive language. Uh, there's another story that came out after the book. It was a you know, woman who had lived as a trans man. She'd passed as a man for 10 years mm. and, then, and then converted to Christianity. And she said, at first, you know, sanctification takes a while. So at first she thought she, can, she could continue living as a man. And she said, I aspired to be a real man of God. And then, and then one day while she was praying, she seemed to hear God say to her, you cannot claim to love me and yet reject my creation. Mm. And she knew what that meant. It meant reject her body, that she was female. That was his creation. That's how God had made her. So that's another example. It, it's not, I've heard that woman on a podcast. Have you heard her? Her story is amazing. I mean, it's, such, it's amazing. Yes, yes. Well, this was early on. She had just, I think she had just been interviewed for Christian Post. So I contacted her and got her story. But now, yeah, she's written a book now. Yeah. So, so I'm glad she's getting better known. But the point is, uh, you know, if there's one positive practical strategy that we all need to, to practice, it is learning to convey the Christian message in this positive way. That the, the reason that we're standing for the Christian view on all of these issues is because we have a high view of the body and we we want to convey that we you know we are we're encouraging you to love your body to respect your body to live in harmony with your biological sex mm -hmm. oh as you put it earlier to tell the truth with your body mm -hmm. that this is how you were created you were created and, and that comes uh, <laughs> i can't resist one more story <laughs> go ahead stories are so good yes they are <laughs> they drive it home so one of my favorite stories in Lovely Body is a, a man named Sean, um, Sean Doherty, who uh, uh, was exclusively homosexual. By the way, you have to say that these days, because if you later uh, leave homosexuality, they will say, oh, well, you never were really exclusively homosexual. You were probably bi. Mm. So he makes the point that he was exclusively homosexual. And what's interesting about his story is that, um, and I did not say this in the book, uh, I, and I should have, because this, this gives it a little more uh, pizzazz. <laughs> he was raised in a gay-affirming family and attended a gay-affirming church. And so it, his change was not driven at all by, by guilt or shame, mm. which is the assumption, right? Right. 
um, guilt, shame, and self-loathing is usually the, the assumption. And it wasn't. He, is, he was a person who sincerely and truly just started saying, I want to take my identity from my body. Instead of trying to change my feelings, which rarely works, I'm going to, to accept, take my identity from what I already have, which is a male body, and to treat it as a good gift from God. That's how he put it, as a good gift from mm -hmm. God. And eventually, my feelings started to follow suit. And so that really is the worldview point at the core of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos created by impersonal, blind, material, purposeless forces? Or do we live in a cosmos created by a loving creator, which is therefore intrinsically good? Mm -hmm. So that's the message we need to convey to people. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, you don't have to ask the question, you know, should I or shouldn't I be this other gender? Because you know, you know, you can just take it from there and then build who you are out from that body, from that foundation that God has given you. That's, that's so true. All right, Nancy. Well, thank you so much for all of your time. It's been awesome uh, just hearing your insights on these things. I think they're so important. I think there's a lot of confusion. I think there's a lot of, like you said, confusions among <laughs> Christians. Like, fully understanding even why our faith um, directs us in this way, which is why I thought your book was so helpful because it really articulates <laughs> and lays out things in a way that are understandable and that honestly really reinforce your belief, like your beliefs in a biblical Christian worldview in a, in a, in a powerful way that you feel more confident speaking out about these things. Because I know for me, it has been <clears throat> a little bit difficult to initially kind of you know, let myself out as a biblically, you know, I'm viewing things that way in this culture, but in the past year or so, I've really um, come to understand more why I believe what I believe in, in terms of these things. And I've been more confident and said, look, like you can call me names, you can call me whatever you want, but um, I believe what I believe. And I'm, I'm not ashamed of that. So thank you so much for your courage in, in putting this book out. Yeah, it helps. It helps if we have, like I said, a positive message, because you know, one reason we get shut down is because everyone assumes that we have a negative message. And so if we can sh shift that debate and show people that, no, Christianity, Christianity has a higher view of the physical world than any other religion or philosophy. Mm -hmm. People sometimes say, oh, well, the materialist or the secularist has a higher view of the body because after all, they think the material world is all that exists. Mm -hmm. um, but just because you think it's all that exists does not mean you think it has high value. I mean, like, like that Camille Paglia quote where she said, well, you know, why should I pay attention to my body? Because the body is just a product of blind material forces. So, it, you know, why should I respect my body? Why should I take my identity from my body? So it is actually a secular worldview that has a, a very de uh, dehumanizing love you of the body. And so once we really capture that, we will be so much more confident in being able to say, wow, Christianity is wonderful. It teaches this very high view of the body. We should be so overjoyed you know, yeah. in conveying it, bringing it out into the public. And, and uh, because it's such a positive message, yeah. we so should be excited and happy to convey it. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And um, I just appreciate your time. And hopefully someday you'll be speaking near where somewhere I am so I can come say hello. Well, it was great to talk with you. Yeah, you're a wonderful host. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay, you too.
This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.